0: After escaping from almost certain death, David is given an opportunity to turn the tables on Saul. This is the 51st sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from the entire chapter 24, chapter 24, the entire chapter this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes. And it came to pass, when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engdegli. And Saul took three thousand chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep coats by the way, where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet. And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king! And Saul looked behind him. David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt? Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord hath delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave. And some bade me kill thee, but mine eyes spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see ye, See the skirt of thy robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not, know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. As saith the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceeded from the wicked but mine hand shall not be upon thee after whom is the king of Israel come out after whom doth thou pursue after a dead dog after a flea the Lord therefore be judge and judge between me and thee and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of thine hand and it came to pass when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul that Saul said, "'Is this thy voice, my son David?' And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, "'Thou art more righteous than I, "'for thou hast rewarded me good, "'whereas I have rewarded thee evil. "'And thou hast showed this day "'how that thou hast dealt well with me, "'for as much as when the Lord "'had delivered me into thine hand, "'thou killest me not. "'For if a man find his enemy, "'will he let him go well away?' Wherefore, the Lord reward thee good for that thou hast done unto me this day. And now, behold, I know well that thou shalt truly be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord, that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me, and that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore unto Saul, and Saul went home, But David and his men get up unto the hold. John writes to us in the first epistle of St. John, chapter 2, beginning in verse 7 through verse 11. By the same Spirit, the Apostle says this, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness, even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. As far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away. The word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Frustrated that he had been called away from pursuing David to fight the Philistines, Saul is now free to continue his murderous quest. Now this is a man determined to satisfy his lusts, even if it means going against the will of God. But as we know, God's will can never be frustrated. God had purposely orchestrated the Philistine uprising as a distraction and a frustration to Saul to give David an opportunity to avoid what seemed to be his imminent assassination. If you remember that David had just recently been cornered by Saul and was about to be captured and executed by Saul when Saul was told that the Philistines were uprising against his people. So David was compassed about on the left and on the right and it was curtains for David until God intervenes and Saul is taken to fight the Philistines. At that moment, all seemed lost, and David thought that this might be the demise of himself, but God showed himself faithful. And we need to take that reality to heart that God is always faithful. God provides safety and he will continue to provide safety and security for his people according to his will. Jude tells us this much at the opening salutation of his epistle. Notice what Jude says in Jude chapter 1 verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. He tells the brethren that they are sanctified. In other words, they're purified from their sins. They now stand guiltless before God. But they're also preserved. In other words, they're they're secured in their salvation. They're secured in their salvation. And during their life, they are preserved and protected by God according to His will until the time appointed for their death. And then he says that they are called. In other words, they are commissioned for a particular purpose, a kingdom purpose. We have a purpose in this life. And so seeing that God had intervened, wasting no time, David sees the hand of God working. So wasting no time, he removes himself from the wilderness of Maon to the wilderness of Anglidhi. Notice, and it came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines that it was told him saying, behold is now in the wilderness. So once again, we see Saul still having his spies who were so well-informed that they seemed to know of David's every move. And that was all without technology. It's amazing. As soon as David leaves from the wilderness of one place and goes to the wilderness of another, Saul knew. Saul was returning from the Philistines, and then it was immediately told to him, David is in this wilderness here. All without technology. And just think about Think about how vulnerable we are today with all of the technological devices that we have at our disposal, that monitor us day and night, week after week, year after year, until the day we die. Could God be telling us from these passages, from these historical accounts, to beware of having all of our information on the World Wide Web? Is that a lesson that we can draw from some of these passages? What we do, where we go, who we support politically, theologically, pictures of our family, pictures of our children, pictures of us going here, pictures of us going there, and here we are, and there we are, and it's all out on the World Wide Web. Now if we believe that we are in a parallel climate as in the days of Saul, then we need to be very careful as to what we expose ourselves to. The world lieth in the wickedness. It lies in the wicked, and the wicked will take every occasion to destroy the righteous. As Christians, we must take a moment of examination. We must take a moment of examining our personal and family culture. And in order to do that, we have to ask some real pressing questions probing questions, uncomfortable questions that we would not ordinarily ask ourselves. So I ask you this. Are you providing a negative example to your children by being a social media texting or chatting addict? Think about it. Just think about what your children see daily. If they see that you're always on the phone, texting, chatting, instead of paying attention to them, or doing projects with them, face-to-face with them, educating them, then you are setting them up for social media, internet, and phone addiction. It doesn't matter what you say. It matters what you do. That's what they see. And your actions speak a whole lot louder than your words. Secondly, do your children have access to a smartphone, a computer, or a tablet? Because if they do, even with monitoring, and I hear parents say, well, you know, we monitor, we have time limits. But you're still opening up your child to all sorts of distraction and perhaps even immoral images, let alone the addicting effects of the visuals. Those visuals coming at you at, at... Light speed are addicting and they begin to take the intelligence away from your child, not only physiologically, but in their concentration. And it's a proven fact that too much visual stimulation retards their ability to concentrate and comprehend, especially when it comes to reading. Or oh, they can sit for hours watching a video. Sitting in church, listening to a sermon, reading a book. After five minutes, they're ready to wiggle out of their skin. Why? Why is our culture different from the culture of the Puritans when there was no social media, no visuals? Constant visual stimulation diminishes focus and reading comprehension. Ask your child. Let them read a passage. Let them see a video and then say, what did you learn? Other than a superhero video. Let them see a documentary then ask them, what did you learn? Crickets. The comprehension begins to evaporate. They're not able to comprehend. So constant visual stimulation diminishes focus. We're always looking for another fix. I want to I like this and then I want someone to like that and I want to like the other thing and I want to do this and I want to do the other thing. You're destroying your child. Third, if this has been your family culture where social media, TV, video games and texting is as important to you and your children as healthy eating and hygiene then you have a real problem. The remedy is simple. Get off the phone, get off the computer and interact with your family. Get involved with your children. Do things. Go places. Read with them. Read to them. Have them read to you. As soon as they're ready to read, they should be reading to you. And then we question them. What did you read? What does that mean? Analyze. Critique. Examine their ability to comprehend and pay attention to detail. You will be, hopefully, pleasantly surprised, but I guarantee, in our culture today, you will be very disappointed. So if your child cannot do these things, then it is time to pay attention to them and to deal with the problem. Let them see you read. Listen to music together, play music together, sing, throw a ball, plant a garden, break the destructive cycle of cyberspace. In this way you will insulate your child from wickedness and worldliness. Now, what good is it to home-educate your child if you're allowing them to be just like the world and the government-schooled kids? Don't bother. Send them away. Go to the park. Let the wicked teach them, because that Internet is teaching them just the same. Now, verse 2 in chapter 24 of Samuel is an astonishing declaration. Saul takes 3,000 men Remember, David had how many? 600. 3,000 of his best men. He didn't just take men that were willing to go. He took 6,000 of his best men. Notice, his best men, his chosen men, to face off against David and his 600 men. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men, these valiant men, out of all Israel, and he went to seek David and his men upon the rocks. Notice, of the wild goats. The two points to be made here. The chosen men. The best men. These were Saul's most excellent warriors, which tells us that Saul was absolutely determined not to miss another opportunity as he did previously. Nothing at this point is going to stand in his way. And so he brings out the big guns. An abundance of men, 3,000. This was sheer overkill which shows us the intensity of soul's hatred and fear of losing the kingdom. Tyrants are bent upon destruction. And their hatred of liberty and the freedom of conscience blinds them to the point of insanity. So whenever an individual is blinded by ambition, a ruler or any other individual, this means that he or she is in darkness. And the darkness, as the scripture says, has blinded their eyes. Spiritual darkness is a blinding force which often results in hatred. John comments on this as we read, but he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth because that darkness has blinded his eyes. Darkness leaves the soul wide open for missteps and mistakes that ultimately ends in destruction. And David understood this as a result of his own experiences with Saul. And so he testifies of this in Psalm 9.15. Notice what he says. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made, in the net which they hid is their own foot taken. The wonder of this is that it didn't matter how many chosen men Saul brought out against God's anointed David. Saul wasn't actually hunting David. In fact, Saul really wasn't even hunting David. Oh, maybe he thought he was hunting David. Historically, he was hunting David. But he wasn't actually hunting David, nor was he seeking to kill him. Deep down inside, as with all tyrants, deep down inside, Saul was actually hunting God. And he was seeking to kill God's representative so he could usurp God's kingdom and claim it for himself. Deep down, Saul was hunting God in order to kill God. And that, I believe is the reason why our government has declared the number one enemy of the United States and the world is climate control. The climate. We need to control the climate. We need to make sure that we have a handle on the climate. Well, who is the God of the climate? God. But if the state could now be God of the climate, they can be God. The plan of the wicked will always fail and fail miserably to the hurt of the wicked. The second point is that Saul was looking for David among the rocks of the wild goats. I I find this amusing. He was looking for David among the rocks of the wild goats when he should have been looking for David among the sheep. But just like the goat that he was, he gravitates towards the goats and not towards the sheep. But David wasn't there. David wasn't where Saul was looking, which is interesting, seeing that up until this point, Saul's intel had been pretty accurate. At this point, it was not so accurate. He was looking for David in the wrong place. But it was not so, which at this point, is very curious. Why was David in one place and Saul's intel said he was in another place? Well, this tells us that the intel of the wicked is only as good as God will allow. I don't care what the intel looks like in man's wisdom. It's only as good as God will allow. So God gives wrong intel to Saul so that he doesn't corner David once again. Now, when Saul and his army arrives near to where David was, nature calls. And Saul is forced to find a place to relieve himself. Children, I want to make this perfectly clear to you what's happening here. Saul needs to use the potty. It is a very humiliating thing because as king, people look at you as if you're supernatural and you don't need to use the potty ever because you're pure. So Saul needs to relieve himself. He needs to go in the potty, so he goes into a cave. He comes to the sheep coats, by the way, where there was a cave and Saul goes in and the scripture says to cover his feet. Also known as he has to use the potty. And David and his men were in that cave. They were hiding in the same cave that Saul was going to use to relieve himself. And they're in the sides of the cave. You've got to picture this. And Saul is going in there. His belly's growling. He looks one way and the other. It's dark. And he pulls his pants down. Very humiliating because he has to use the potty. And this is all according to the providential workings of God. God in His holy providence as He orchestrates all things, even Saul having to go to the party. He brings Saul into the cave, and David has been hiding on the side. And by this we learn that even the physiological patterns of bodily functions are in the hands of the Almighty, down to the detail. One commentator put it this way. It was a classic case of being caught with one's pants down. <laughs> Literally. In this scene we see that even the most guarded warriors among us have their vulnerable moments when their guard is down. Moreover, God can spoil the proudest of men through the basest of means just as He uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise and the weak things to shame the strong. God had just used the routine natural urges of Saul to place him at the mercy of David. An amazing situation orchestrated by God. This was now the perfect opportunity for David to finally, David and his men, to finally take revenge upon Saul. David knew that, and his men knew that all too well. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemies into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. David's men saw this, they looked at this, and they determined, they anticipated that God had done this. This was God's hand in his providential orchestration in delivering Saul to David so that David could kill him. They are telling David that God is setting up the situation to Kill Saul. Interpreting this situation so that David would kill Saul. Now, certainly, this seemed likely. It seemed like God was bringing Saul into the cave at the most humiliating moment of his life when he's on the toilet to kill him. But this was not the opportunity that David was looking for. Likely to his men, but not to David. This was a test. Would David take to himself vengeance Or would he leave it to God? So, instead of killing Saul, David simply cuts off a little corner of the hem of his garment, of his royal robe. I'm just going to, while he's sitting down, relieving himself, I'm going to just take a little piece of that royal robe. You know, the kings had the royal robe, so he takes a little piece of the royal robe, and he cuts the piece of the royal robe. But even that simple act violated David's conscience. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. Now consider David's reasoning. Now you and I might say, as his men, what in the world are you thinking? And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of Yahweh. At this point, David shows mercy even in the face of a murderous enemy. Now surely David's men must have been somewhat disappointed, at least, at best, perhaps even angered, since this act would have kept them running from Saul. Again and again and again. They may even have surmised that Saul would be that much more infuriated as a result of this humiliation. And in their estimation, David's action may have guaranteed their defeat and even David's death. Because they're in the cave. And now Saul's going to go out of the cave seeing that his skirt is cut and say, they're in the cave. They're trapped. We've got them now. David, what are you doing? And yet, David calms his army and dissuades them from taking any further action against the king. Verse 7, So David stayed his servants with these words, and suffered them not to rise against Saul, but Saul rose up out of the cave and went his way. So Saul finishes his business, gets up, and leaves the cave. Now The question is this, what did David do, and why did he do it? In other words, what is the symbolism here in the cutting off of the corner of Saul's robe? Why was this more devastating to Saul than taking his life? Consider what David did. To the uneducated eye, all David did was cut off a piece of Saul's royal robe. Well, it was in a most humbling and humiliating, vulnerable position. But that was precisely the point. He cut off a part of the royal robe, almost in the same way as the robe of Saul was torn by Samuel, symbolizing the departure of the kingdom from the rule of Saul given to David. David takes a piece of the royal robe symbolizing Saul's authority, reminding him of his doom that Samuel had prophesied. This was the same type of robe that Jonathan had given to David and Samuel's mother gave to him, all of which symbolized royalty. Once that robe was cut, it no longer was intact. It was now marred, symbolizing that the authority of Saul was no longer intact. It too was marred, bringing Saul's mind back to that fearful prophecy of Samuel that the kingdom had been taken from him and given to another. And I'm sure that crossed his mind. Once he saw that David had a piece of that robe, it would have been back to that time. His mind would have been back, transferred back to that time. Now next, consider why David did it. Why did David do this? Well, knowing Saul's pride in the fact that he held the dominion posture as Israel's king illegitimately, David did something far worse than killing Saul. First, he humiliated him. To a man like Saul, the proud narcissist that he was, this was the ultimate death blow. This was better than killing him. To put a narcissist down into this place of humiliation and, and, and mourning over the fact that you were so humiliated was worse than death. To kill a man's pride in such a way was to kill the man. To humble this man in public, before his constituents, before his entire army of 3,000 valiant men, to Saul, the narcissist, was almost unbearable. Secondly, Saul knew that his time was limited. His time was running out. He may have not wanted to believe it or accept it, but his time was running out. His days on this earth as king were running out. Samuel's prophetic declaration was now established by a second witness so that these two witnesses, by these two witnesses, Saul was sure to be defrocked. The first time with Samuel, the second now by David. So David, by taking a piece of the royal robe, David had taken to himself A symbol of his royalty while at the same time taking from Saul a symbol of his royalty. In other words, there's a transference of royal power. David is now transferring the power of royalty from Saul to David. Thirdly, this was a conspicuous act. It wasn't done in secret. David goes before the entire army of Saul. He says, look, I've got the robe. I've got the symbol of royalty. Very conspicuous, obvious. In the same way as the transference of royalty would be done for all the world to see when Christ transferred his royal power from Adam to himself. Stated before, Both Saul's men and David's men could now see in a physical way that the kingdom was being taken from Saul and given to another. Saul was spoiled. His army was now spoiled. His principalities were spoiled. The realm that he had taken as king was now spoiled. Adam's principalities, Adam's power, Adam's place, if he had any place of Federal headship or royalty ever had now been spoiled. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, he says, about Christ and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, even as David did. He made a show of this transference of power openly before Saul's men. Christ does the same thing. He makes a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. David was triumphant that day. He declared his Victory at that time, in that day. No longer was this transition of power and authority only to be tied to a prophecy. It now had teeth. Even as the prophets of old spoke about the transference of the bondage of Adam into the victory of Christ, after Christ had actually accomplished that victory, the reality now had teeth. Number four. David transfers his power from Saul to himself in a symbolic fashion in that way that Christ transfers Adam's dominion power and authority to himself while in a cave. When did it all happen? Christ is buried in the cave in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, which was in fact a cave. And it's also interesting that even though David now had the symbol of royalty, he did not assume the actual position of power at that point in the same way that Christ did not manifest his power and his royal authority after exiting the cave until Pentecost when everything changed. When the whole world was in a blaze with the tongues of fire and the word of God. And if we continue this comparison between David and Christ, we see that after the resurrection from the cave, Christ actually had all power and authority given to him, just as David was given all power and authority by having that piece of the royal robe after he cut the skirt from Saul. Now if these parallels, which are all historically parabolic, are accurate, then we might assume that when David took the skirt of Saul's royal robe from him, He actually had all power and authority given to him, but it would not be manifested until David was actually coronated. That power was given to Christ at his coronation, and then it was manifested openly at Pentecost. David then exits the cave with Saul's symbol of authority in his possession, and calls to the tyrant king in order to make a public declaration. Note how the scripture carefully states that David exited the cave, which is another allusion to Christ's resurrection when he exits the cave when the stone is rolled back. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My lord the king, when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. Note the humility of the shepherd king he bows himself to address Saul who still had the outward show of authority. The question is this, is David bowing in honor of Saul the man or is David bowing in honor of Saul the king in his office? What is he paying homage to? The wicked man or the office that he holds? I believe the latter is the response. David is bowing to the office. Now, notice David's defense. Remember, David is speaking this so everyone can hear, especially, I believe, especially Saul's army. David's first declaration. Why are you listening to the conspiracy theorists of men who are filling your head with lies about me? David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. David then backs up his statement that he has no intention of bringing destruction to Saul by the fact that he could have killed him, but he did not. But then he does something very, very, very different that we might do. In fact, he calls Saul the Lord's anointed. Even though we see that in a very real way, Saul is no longer the anointed king of Israel, but yet David is still addressing him as such. And he says in verse 10, Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how the Lord hath delivered thee today into my hand in the cave. And some bade me kill thee, but mine eyes spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord, for he is Yahweh's anointed. He is the Lord's Messiah. He stands as the Lord's Messiah, because that's really what the word is, the word anointed, Messiah. He's representing the anointing of God, but now we have another question: Was Saul God's anointed? Well, certainly he was a wicked man, but but and by this time we know that he was illegitimate. He was defrocked. He possessed no real authority. He was cursed of God. So why does David call him the Lord's anointed? Well, let's put it another way. In a way, this hits home more personally is our president, as wicked as he is, as blind and in darkness and ungodly as he is, make no mistake about it, he's not senile. He knows exactly what he's doing and I get that from a good source. A source that's right there with the president. He knows exactly what he's doing. Saul knew exactly what he was doing. He wanted to destroy the true Lord's anointed. So, Is our current president, those wicked in his administration, those ungodly people, is the president the Lord's anointed? Well, the scripture teaches us this in in Daniel chapter 2. Verse 20 and 21, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. The proverb writer says this in 21.1 and 16.33 The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water he turneth it whithersoever he will. The lot is cast into the lap but the entire disposing thereof is of the Lord. When Pilate told the Lord that he had power to kill him or let him go Jesus said this Thou couldest have no power at all Notice he emphasizes at all against me except it were given thee from above. Unless it were given thee from above. Speaking of the authority of rulers, the Apostle says this, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. They are ordained of God. The fact of the matter is that even wicked kings and tyrannical presidents are ordained of God. Like it or not, they are God's anointed. But the real question is, anointed to what end? Pharaoh was God's anointed, as was Ahab, Jezebel, Nero, Caligula, Diocletian, Hitler, Stalin, and every other tyrannical reprobate ruler that ever lived. But they were not anointed unto salvation, but unto damnation. So when you consider to what end wicked rulers are ordained of God and anointed of God, it's very clear in the case of Pharaoh. Romans chapter 9, beginning of verse 17, for the scripture says unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose, have I raised thee up, in other words, I've anointed thee as king, I've raised you up, so that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth to show my power in thee, in my destructive Force against the wickedness of Pharaoh. Paul continues in verse 22. He says, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? So, yeah, in a real way, Saul was God's anointed. Yes, in a real way, the President of the United States and the President of Russia, they're God's anointed. But they are anointed for a purpose. They are ordained in order to manifest the power and majesty and glory of God. God calls them vessels of wrath, fitted or prepared for destruction. An additional reason God raises up the wicked rulers is also to bring, as we know, His chastising hand upon the apostate church and the apostate nation. So wicked rulers are God's anointed chastising messengers. Wicked rulers are also used against a slumbering people in order to wake them up out of their sleep and bring them back to God. All wicked rulers, therefore, are God's anointed unto destruction and not unto glory. And so David rightly calls Saul the Lord's anointed. David, however, goes one step further and calls Saul father. Notice what he says in verse 11. Moreover, my father... See, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand. So here, just humanly speaking, David shows the utmost respect for Saul as his father. And now this was also a legal term, since Saul was actually David's father-in-law. And the children born to David and Michal would be Saul's grandchildren. This was an appeal to the family stability, reminding Saul of the divine connection he and David had by the institution of marriage. Now, if we continue in our symbolism between Adam and Christ, Adam was in fact the father of the human race, and Christ was part of the human race, therefore he can be called a father. David adds this in his defense. Moreover, my fathers, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in mine hand. For in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. So after David calls upon God to intervene in this dispute, telling Saul that since he is innocent of any wrongdoing, he will leave it up to God to avenge him. But he, David, will not lift up his hand to kill Saul. Now this strategy had a dual purpose. First, it shows Saul that David was so convinced of his innocence that he would trust God to protect him and take vengeance upon Saul in his behalf. And so he calls upon God to be the judge. And this was an extreme act of faith. And it must have resonated with Saul to some extent, knowing that God was now brought into the situation as judge. Secondly, it was also a reminder that Saul had no real justification for killing David. Once God was brought into the picture, Saul was now given a moment to pause, or at least for a moment, to consider whether he had real justification to kill David. Then David, in a passive-aggressive move, quotes an ancient proverb, very crafty, indicting Saul as a wicked man. Verse 13, As saith the proverb of the ancients, Wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. In other words, you are a wicked man. David is moving here in a very bold fashion, a very bold move on David's part. Adam Clark comments, he says this, This proverb may be thus understood. He that does a wicked act gives proof thereby that he is a wicked man. From him who is wicked, wickedness will proceed. He who is wicked will add one iniquity to another. Had I conspired to dethrone thee, I should have taken thy life when it was in my power and thus added wickedness to wickedness. End quote. David then again pleads as to his insignificance. Notice, humble David. As Christ humbles himself, David is humbling himself. He pleads his insignificance and calls upon God to deliver him in verses 14 and 15. Notice, He's saying this to Saul. Who are you hunting? Of who are you coming out against? After whom are you pursuing? After a dead dog? I'm a a dead dog. Who am I? I'm a nobody. After a flea? The Lord therefore be judged. Notice he's calling God into the mix. And judge between me and thee, and see and plead my cause, and deliver me out of thine hand. This obviously was too much for Saul to take. And so he calls to David and addresses him as his son. And it came to pass, when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Now we have to ask another question. Why was Saul weeping? Was it in humble repentance for what he had tried to do to David? Did somehow his conscience smite him? Did somehow God intervene in his life at this moment? Or was it because that all of his efforts failed to retain the kingdom for himself? Was he really crying because he finally could not prevail? I think that would be the case. Note his confession. And he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me. Notice, you have to understand what he doesn't say. He didn't say, I'm a dead dog, I'm a flea, I'm unrighteous, I should go straight to hell. He doesn't say that. You're more righteous than I As if to say, I'm righteous, but you're more righteous. I killed my thousands, but you killed your ten thousands. There's no repentance here. There's no humiliation here. There's no sorrow here. Oh, he's weeping. Yeah, because he's lost the kingdom. He knows it's done. These are crocodile tears. Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded the evil. And thou hast shown me this day how that thou hast dealt well with me, for as when the Lord hath delivered me into thy hand, thou killest me not. And then he says, For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good, for that thou hast done unto me this day. And now, behold, I know well. This is why he was crying. And now, behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king. Boohoo! It's not gonna be me. Curses That's why he's crying. Sort of like when when Hillary lost <laughs> to Trump and she threw chairs and tables across the room and slammed the big plasma screen TV, crying, Curses, curses, it's not me of the Wizard of Oz. That's Saul. Picture the narcissist. Saul. And now, behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand, not mine. So Saul finally concedes that he will not remain king and his kingdom will ultimately be taken from him. But I find it even amazing his final request of David. What hubris. He tried to, and we have to understand, he tried to build a Benjamite dynasty. He tried to take the most wicked tribe. Remember the judges. What that tribe did to the Levites concubine. The most wicked of tribes. He wants to build a dynasty on the Adamic Benjamites. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord that thou will not cut off my seed after me, and that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. Now this is what Saul wanted all along. A name in Israel for his future posterity. And here we are shown Saul the a pitiful, broken, defeated man who begs for mercy. While David agrees to show Saul mercy, the Lord's anger remains upon him. Saul may be, have been given mercy by David, but not so with God. And David swore unto Saul, verse 22, And Saul went home, but David and his men got up them unto the hold. They got them up unto the hold. In other words, they hid again. They still were hiding. So even though Saul confesses his wrong and asks David for mercy, and David agrees, it is interesting to note that David and his men Remain in a fortified situation, still not trusting Saul because a man like Saul, I don't care what they tell you, I don't care what they say, they are not to be trusted. David would not trust Saul, even in his seemingly repentance. When we continue next in chapter 25, we will find Samuel dead and David beginning to flex his muscles as God's anointed This we shall do. God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.